how do you manage that? How do you manage showing up in the most authentic way, showing up as Connor every day, leading 60 odd people? So in a way that you also are authentic to yourself and how you're feeling? Because there will be some days that Connor is feeling stressed, oh, Connor is yeah. feeling not 100%. Yeah. State management's key, right? And so you gotta know yourself, know what, you know, pay attention to your body. Uh, hi, I'm Connor O'Rourke. Uh, it's been a pleasure being here on the Open Diaries podcast. I'm the co-founder of Nuaga, which is a IT uh, solutions business. We specialize in, in managed services and cybersecurity here in South Australia. Entrepreneur is like an interesting word, you know, I, to be frank with you, when I wanted, I even went and looked it up. I was like, what does that, what does that really mean? It's like, okay, somebody is able to make a bet of their own capital or other people's capital in the hopes that they can gain more. Like, well, that's not really something that I want to be. What are some of the lessons you've learned about yourself starting? Like, was there a moment you're like, okay, I need, I need to do something about this particular? Yeah, there's been countless learning moments along there. And I think that needs to be one of the key things that you value is learning and reflecting and asking for feedback because you need to fail if you're going to do it properly. Before we get to this episode, Amin and I have two massive favors to ask. We started this podcast on our passion to connect with interesting people with fascinating stories and sharing those stories with everyone so we can all learn from them. Now, what's truly fueling our growth and to help us share more stories, some very interesting people. One is our passion of storytelling and really wanting to hear people's stories because we generally believe in the power of sharing real human stories. But also, your word of mouth and sharing with your family and friends is just as powerful to help us have more reach to people out there. So please, do share it with anyone who you think might benefit from it. Currently, only a third of you that are listening to us are, have followed us on any whatever platform that you are uh, accessing to our podcast. So we would love to see more of you joining that cohort. So please, follow us on whatever platform you're hearing this message on. For now, let's get into the episode. Connor. You're a father, you're a husband, you're also part of the Force 40 Under 40 in Daly in South Australia, and you've won Entrepreneur of the Year. You're a co-founder of Nuego, yeah. which we'll get to a bit later. But what Ali and I are really interested in is removing all these titles aside for a minute or two and tell me, who is Connor? Oh, that's a... A wonderful question. I think, um, and the first thing that always comes to mind for me is kind of playful curiosity, right? So I've just always been, you know, pretty curious about, I think, how things learn and, and being a, a voracious learner. Um, I think that's kind of what, what life's about is just, you know, trying to, as you get older, better understand yourself. And um, I love family first and foremost and friends. And I think underpinning all that's probably just connection. I think that's probably what we all look for in, in life. There's probably a little too much, um, you know, segregation in society of whatever it is. You know, there's so many different ways that people carve up different human existence when I think there's so much commonality to probably focus on. So I don't know. I've always been a person that really likes to travel and meet new people and people from different cultures and trying new foods and new things that might scare me at first. And yeah, that's, I don't know if that's probably me on the, uh, below the, the the titles or the monikers we we apply, I, I look at life as a as a series of dominoes that kind of fall and the kind of we end up where we are today. If you if you were to look at your like your earlier childhood, what was that first few dominoes that fell for you that kind of end 
make your NW on today? That's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I don't know what age we start remembering things. It's actually a core memory or whether because we've been told it, then that's the version we we think we remember it. If, does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was born in a family that moved around a lot. So um, was always kind of experiencing new places and uh, had parents that both had professional jobs that uh, mom was in medical sales, dad worked uh, with a lot of tech companies out of Silicon Valley and, and around San Diego and Southern California. Uh, so we, we moved around a lot with that sort of stuff, but always, you know, loved team sport and being involved in, in those sort of things. My parents always insisted on doing, you know, extracurricular activities and academics were certainly a focus. And, you know, mom's one of nine kids, the eldest of all the, the girls that took care of largely her, her siblings because both her parents worked. And my old man's the son of a military family, so moved around all the time. So, yeah, they they were, you know, uh, people that taught me a lot about, you know, hard work and, and resilience and, you know, couldn't talk back to them and that sort of stuff, which was great, you know. Um, I think America, by and large, probably had a little bit more strictness. You called people's parents Mr. and Mrs. I noticed when I first moved to Australia, they called parents by their first name. And it was it was a bizarre thing for me when, when we first moved on. It was just kind of small cultural differences that you pick up in time. Um, but yeah, the first things I remember is probably just, um, you know, adventure wise sliding down this ice vine hill on a little saucer as a kid. I don't know why that comes back to me as you asked me the question now, but, um, I've always liked that sort of stuff of like, you know, uh, getting on the edge of something and getting out of the comfort zone a little bit. And I guess one of the things I try to live my life by now is finding comfort in those uncomfortable situations. It's kind of one of my personal mottos or, or values I try to remind myself of, of when that fear creeps in, you're like, think about all those other times that you've gone through the experience and got to the other side and you're like, oh, I'm actually glad I did that. It was, it was formative or it helped you learn something because it had a negative consequence and to not do that again. And you add that to the, the kind of recipe going forward of who you are. I love the saying, uh, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Give us an, an example of like one of the early, early experiences that you felt it, like really that this is very uncomfortable. I don't want to do this, but you went through with it anyway. And then it just became a, a lesson that you keep referring to. And maybe yeah. hence makes you like, yeah, I'm going to give this, this one a try because this time I did this thing and I didn't regret it. Yeah. I guess going back to one of the earliest times I can remember, I mean, martial arts comes up for me. Um, did a couple of different forms of karate with, uh, my brother growing up, um, that teaches you a lot about discipline, but I remember it being, you know, one of those first experiences of doing something that's hard, you know, physically that I think a lot of those physical challenges is you learn that your mind gives up before your body does. And, um, that's one of the earlier ones that, that comes to me, but I really got into, you know, the teachings of Wim Hof there for a while around, you know, cold therapy and ice baths and the breath work and those things he does. And, uh, that's one of his main kind of philosophies. I've shamelessly stolen that from him and finding comfort and discomfort. So I think it's a good philosophy to have. And especially, you know, if you want to take the, the plunge of, you know, entrepreneurialism or business and, and that sort of stuff, um, you need to always kind of be fluid a little bit because changes do come all the time. And yeah. You mentioned your dad being in the military and we've had this conversation before. So what was that like growing up? I think from a stability perspective, I know it gives you the resilience. Yeah. Everything you get taught at West Point and then you pass it on to your kids. 
and it is fairly common in the US. I mean, considering the size of the defense force you yes, have. Yes. But what was that like for you as a child from your perspective? So dad did two years at West Point. His father was a, I believe, a major uh, in the United States Army, so quite high up. A brilliant man. He fought in Korea, was shot numerous times, had a grenade blow up to him, took out one of his hearing, uh, hearing, I think, in, his, in one of his ears. Um, a lot of his men died, you know, in his early 20s having this kind of experience. And, um, you know, so he was, a, he, was a, he was a tough man, a brilliant man, incredibly smart. Um, so my dad grew up in that family. He was one of three. And they moved all around being a military job wherever he was stationed for the work that he was doing. Um, and so my dad focused on academics because, like me, he moved around a lot. So the focus at sport or academia is kind of those things that you can grab on to. If you are moving around, it's another place you can you can meet other people and whatnot. So he was very academically focused and sporting uh, inclined. So um, he went to West Point for two years and decided at the end of his second year because um, he had you know, gotten very, very far in terms of the mathematical side of things where, because they rank you in those schools and things. And I believe he got an award for marksmanship uh, and his, he had a conversation with his father. And I only know this because I read, he just wrote the story of his dad because my dad just turned 70 and he wanted to write the story of his father who's passed away. And um, I was reading in there and he uh, said at the end of his second year, he wanted to at least do enough to say to his dad, that he wasn't leaving because he couldn't cope. He was like, so I've, I've been able to achieve those things, but he wanted to go and not pursue a military uh, career. So he learned a lot from it. I think he's thankful that he had that experience, but his, his dad at that stage said, yeah, I'm happy for you to go where you want to. So um, yeah, he moved out to the West coast of America, went to school out there. Um, so what is that had in terms of maybe the parenting style or the, the lifestyle I worked with is, well, I think, you know, hard work, resilience, teamwork, I think is critical in a military context. Um, so we always, as a, I think a family, we're a good team unit when we moved. And I think, you know, as both of you are immigrants as well, you do the unit that you, you relocate with is incredibly important. Um, that kind of first, you know, support network, if you will. So that was mine was my immediate family with, with, uh, moving out to Australia, which originally was going to be a five year kind of trip. And they've been here, I think, 27 years without leaving. I did a stint back in the States, but yeah, Australia is certainly home now. So yeah. Um, at what point did you move to Australia? How old were you when you came here? I was nine years old when we moved here. So it was 1996 that we came out here, May of 96. Yeah. And what was like the, uh, the was there like element of cultural shock when you, when you, when you got here and you had to go to school here, I'm assuming. Yeah. Surprisingly there was, um, yeah. I think because, you know, both the United States and Australia speak English. I thought, oh, everything will be largely the same. But I think it's probably the only thing that's actually the same, which makes it a lot easier because you can at least communicate on a fundamental level. But uh, yeah, food different, culture different. It's a lot more of a melting pot now, which is awesome. Um, but it didn't have as much cultural influence, I think, when I moved here in the 90s. Um, whereas you can get, you know, any type of cuisine or, or things in Adelaide now. So Nice. So at, at nine, you moved to Australia, yeah. you go to school here and then, um, and you decide to go back to the United States to do university. Yeah. I did my first year of uni here. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. And you could transfer to a list of like 10 other places, I think. And so I had a look at those and my passions were, I've always loved sport. Hockey was my main one. So, uh, inline hockey, ice hockey, I played even a little bit of field hockey, um, 
I love snowboarding as well. So I was like, oh, Colorado has those things in spades. Um, it'd be great to be able to kind of have the hobbies as well as go do the kind of university experience. Um, and so you were able to go for, I think it's up to a year on exchange to one of those schools and still, you know, stay under the, the uni you're going to here. And uh, so I did that, got towards the end of the year. I was like, I want to stay here. I was having a good time, you know, playing for the, the collegiate team there and, um, you know, being able to snowboard a lot and met a bunch of people that was, you know, fun to hang out with that were the same age and those things. So I uh, ended up staying out there and permanently transferred to that university. So lost some, some credits on the way that didn't transfer and whatever else. But um, yeah, spent the better part of five years out in Northern Colorado and then moved back here when the GFC really started to, to play out on the job market. You're spilling out of uni without a whole lot of um, you know, different opportunities at, at, at that kind of uh, 2009 when it was really starting to unfold. I think both Ali and I are very curious about this question because you migrated to Australia and then you went back to live in the US. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine either Ali or I doing this right now. That would really play up with my identity a little bit. How did you feel? I mean, you went back to play sports, playing hockey, field hockey. Uni life is all about uni life, especially the American college life. Let's be clear. There's a big distinction between US and Australia, right? Yeah. And you can maybe touch on that. But how did you feel throughout the whole process and what led you to come back eventually? Because yeah, you can say you're American, but you're also somewhat Australian. You know, I, I tell people I sound American, but I feel Australian. Um, it's sometimes it, it is hard because when I, when I moved back there, you wouldn't believe me, but I did not sound American at all because I had moved here when I was nine, right? So I was young enough. So the accent started to wear off and those sort of things. And I wasn't around it other than my parents sounding like Yanks at home. So I was always around cause like my mates and everything, they would all speak with an Australian accent. So sometimes like I'll even use Australian words, but I say them as an American. People look at me strange and i'm like okay yeah so i think even my vocabulary has turned australian <laughs> but it, it said with this american tone so it can be confusing for people um but when i went back probably within three months it was fully american again because i wasn't around a single australian accent because i just lived among i i decided to move into the dorms to meet people because i didn't know anyone i was just some random kid on a foreign exchange going back but the foreign exchange i was on was from the country that i was born in so yeah it was a little bit strange but it's um you know, your identity, I think, just is a formation of, of all those sort of things that you actually do along the way. So I do notice certain elements of both of those, those things that play out in who I am today. Um, but yeah, at times it, you know, but I feel like I'm quite malleable to understanding both of the cultures when I, when I need to, or, you know, more broadly, any of the places that you travel to, I think you get more informed, or if you've got mates from certain places, you you know, like one of my best mates when I was in high school was from Dubai. So, you know, being around him all the time, I feel like there was parts of his culture that just by being friends with him, you get naturally exposed to and that stuff as well, which maybe that forms part of your identity in the, the longer run. So you graduated just when the GFC hit? Yes. What happened after that? So I was going to take life seriously, right? Snowboarding and playing hockey is... is <laughs> Not a way to be able to pay the bills. And the arrangement with the old man is going, you, you got to, you know, it's now time to go be a, a man and get out there and, and fend for yourself and those things. And, um, you know, you miss being around family. Uh, so I didn't, didn't have that support network. And I'm um, going, well, 
there's no real, I didn't want to stay in journalism. Uh, there wasn't a plethora of jobs that were just there for the taking because, you know, I think sometimes, oh, I get this certificate and all of a sudden these jobs are available, which, which, uh, I mean, for some that probably happens in timing and, and location, but, um, that wasn't the case. So came back just to visit family over Christmas. I wasn't anticipating moving back here. Um, and, uh, yeah, ended up meeting some great people that were working in a da uh, in a company that my dad was involved with, uh, called Datacom, uh, and had some coffee with those guys. Cause I'd met them growing up working in, in my old man's previous company when, on school holidays and, and things, same sort of people that they were working with in, in the iteration of this company that they were in. And we had a, a coffee and I said, Oh, we've got this, you know, entry level sales role coming up. Would you consider moving back to Adelaide? And yeah, thought about it over the next few weeks and consulted with my dad who's a mentor of mine in a big way. And I said, well, you know, it's a great way to get into the professional world and, you know, you got to start to build a resume and whatever else. And yeah, so I moved back to the States after that Christmas holiday uh, and said, well, I'm going to sell everything up that in the house I was renting with a bunch of flatmates and uh, sell the car. And I was back here a month later and starting, you know, becoming an adult and getting a paycheck properly and those sort of things. So. Was it all you imagined adulthood? Oh, it sucked, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great to, to get involved in something because the, the business I joined was really on a, a great growth trajectory. I had a, one, a bunch of wonderful mentors to learn under. Um, and you, you, it's so important to be in the right place at the right time as well. Like I was, I was really lucky in that regard, right? To be around those wonderful people that you do that take you under their wing because sometimes, you know, other people don't, take the time to teach and to develop others and those things. So yeah, I'm really thankful for having those folks around me when, uh, when I did, because it was formative and I think helping me um, shape my business career and where I was going to go from that age. You've mentioned your dad quite a lot today. How's your mom doing? My mom's awesome. My mom is, uh, I've got a lot of personality traits like my mom. So uh, she's got, you know, Irish blood That's really. That's probably why you like it. You like your dad too. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah, I guess because I mean, in the context of uh, business, he he was there directly with that. But my mom is um, like the most organized human being you'll ever encounter in the world. Keeps our whole lives together as kids growing up. Could just juggle a thousand things at once. And is, I asked her one time, I was like, "How do you get everything done that you get done in a day?" She said, "Oh, I just don't go to sleep until I get done what I was going to get done for the day." And phenomenal human being. Like she's the toughest person, you know, survived cancer, um, wow. is a gritty, gritty person and always was the one that told me to get back up, get back on the horse. Um, yeah, she's, she's a badass, not a lady you want to mess with because she's, you know, fiercely protective of her family, but very intelligent. The life of the party can cook like a, an absolute chef. Um, so yeah, she's been a huge part of my growth and is absolutely a, a big part of who I am. How important is it to have that type of influence in your life? Some people don't have that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the luckiest person I know. So I genuinely believe that. I don't say that as a, as a token thing, you know, it's a lottery, you know, you win the lottery sometimes when you just, because of where you're born and, and in the place you're born, I think about, you know, all the third world countries in the world, all the horrible war torn situations that you could be in and be born into and never have the opportunity to even escape that, um, you know, I can't imagine. So yeah, luck of the draw. And I'm so lucky to have those folks around me because, you know, there's, 
there's no way that I could be able to be as, as fortunate as I am today without the guidance of those sorts of folks like my parents and some of the other mentors that, that I've had. That's for damn sure. Um, so you work your way up in Data.com? Yes. And then you decide to, it's time to move on. Yeah. You know, I, I had uh, always kind of been exposed to the the tech scene or business kind of Silicon Valley stuff just because by nature of what my dad had done. And I actually didn't see myself necessarily being in it. Um, I had went to to study uh, journalism and psychology and found myself back in tech, you know, right at the end of the the studies. So, um yeah, really, I, I started at, at Dotacom. It really taught me about sales. It taught me about you know dealing with all elements of a business. And I had kind of done a lot of that uh, in work experience sort of stuff when I was growing up as a teenager because I got to do kind of secondments in different areas of, of my parents' company. Um, so that taught me a lot of those elements. And then the actual craft of selling and customer service and um, you know some of the, the elements in, in marketing to an extent, I learned through there. And um, yeah, I've always kind of had a little bit of that spirit of wanting to to create. And uh, we thought there was an addressable area of the market that we could put something together uh, that would service, you know, I think an unmet need. And yeah, we decided to, to put the chips on the table and, and have a have a go at it. Yeah. And that was the birth of Nuego. That was the birth of Nuego, that's correct. And I believe that's a big part of the title entrepreneur of the year going back to titles oh man um I, I yeah i would think that's probably a big part of what's helped me get that award i didn't expect to get it um but nuago has been a, a wonderful part of my life certainly a a difficult journey because you learn a lot about yourself and you know when you have to lead people i think uh it's certainly a, a journey with yourself through the, the whole way of you know, really reflecting and figuring out, am I doing the right things, the business, the people in the organization, the culture needs for me at this point in time? Because you get to these different kind of plateaus or glass ceilings and you go, all right, you got to look yourself in the mirror and go, what's the next phase? Am I standing in the way of the development of the organization or of the individuals in the business? Um, so that's certainly something that it's taught me. And, you know, fortunately, as as one of the the shareholders of the business and as one of the, the exec team and founders, I've got to accept an accolade for that, but it's certainly, it's, it's a team, it's an organization, it's a living thing of its own that, you know, when I'm not there, it's still operating in the same fashion than if I, I am. Right. So, um, yeah, it's been a fun seven years. We just turned seven years. Um, we one July. Congrats. So, thank you. Thank you. It seems like yesterday, but it also seems like forever ago when you, it's a strange feeling, right? Like, yeah, I look at it and go, I can remember the things so vividly of startup mode like yesterday, but it also seems like an eternity at times because I don't know if other people get that with the, the, the almost the time warp that the pandemic caused is that you weren't living out three years in advance. You were living until the next press conference about what the, the rules were. Um, and so I think that led to a lack of you know, safety and security for people being able to see the, the long run and those sort of things. So. It's good to see everybody looking outwards again and, and looking forward at stuff. So. so, yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, it's very nice and feels good when you get, I suppose, that accolade. Yeah. But people don't see the hard work. People don't see all the grunt you've done in the background, 
this whole misconception we have today we live in this world of just like attention economy instant gratification oh my god here's a very nice success yeah right and i really want to almost debunk this myth maybe by asking a simple question like what is the the entrepreneurial mindset or the grit really come down to that you think helped you throughout the way what is like watch the average person susan or michael listening to that should care about it could they even use it if they're not starting something in their life or i think that there's elements of it that everybody can probably use um going out and starting a business isn't the path that everyone's going to walk nor should they um i think there's different personality archetypes and there's different desires to do things and um that's where you get so many different types of folks in the economy with more of a gig economy now where people are able to express themselves in the way that they want to work. Um, so yeah, I'm, I think entrepreneurs like an interesting word, you know, I, to be frank with you, when I wanted, I even went and looked it up and I was like, what does that, what does that really mean? It's like, okay, somebody that is able to make, you know, a bit of their own capital or other people's capital in the hopes that they can gain more. And I'm like, well, that's not really something that I want to be is something that, that, you know, I aspire to, Oh, that's great. I was able to do things with, with cash. It's more about the, the ability to be a leader and to have a, a vehicle, a forum, a vessel to be able to impact other people and to lead and to connect uh, with others is really what I've found is the most rewarding part of it. Um, it's that the journey of the whole thing, it's not chasing some arbitrary, I think, destination. It's enjoying the, the process. If you were to sum up your, your experience starting New Eagle um, into number of lessons, how would you do it? How long will you want this podcast to go for? We're here <laughs> for as long as you want us to be gone. <laughs> um, I mean, some of the lessons is you got to be absolutely, you know, courageous and brave. Um, and that, But that doesn't mean not having emotions and not not showing that days are difficult and you know vulnerable authenticity but still having the courage to do it going yeah i i mean i am scared to do this or it has been a bad day you know they've just said that you know the whole business dynamic and unfortunately people are losing their lives because of these things these things come along and you're still a human being through the whole process so man it's you know that I'm not a big social media person, but no filter on an entrepreneurial journey. It's bloody hard. There's lots of ups and downs. Every person I've ever spoken to that's that's gone the journey and and survived it, because a lot of businesses don't make it. I think 80% of businesses don't make it to five years, and 80% of those businesses don't make it to 10. So it's a small fraction of those organizations that actually, I think, you know, take off into the wind, get enough trajectory to clear the trees and the mountain at the end of the runway, and and you know, kind of take flight with it. So yeah, it's a uh, you know, for it's an endurance journey. You can't sprint the marathon that is running a company, and you just try to find what's the the, the gear you can maintain. Um, you know, like the Kenyan runners. I don't know if you've ever seen. They always dominate these long distance events globally. It's like you know, think about how you got to run a, a long distance race. You don't go slow. You don't go too fast to burn yourself out. But they find the this gear. If you ever watch them, they're just incredible at their long distance running, like the 10k plus sort of stuff. So I think that's a really good parallel you can draw between the style and why they tend to, to do so well in those events that obviously got a great philosophy behind how to do that. 
there's a good one there for for the business startup or entrepreneur journey. Quick one. Can you please take a second and follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us from? What are some of the lessons you've learned about yourself starting Numega? Is this was there a moment you're like, okay, I need I need to do something about this particular Yeah, there's been countless learning moments along there, and I think that needs to be one of the key things that you value is learning and reflecting and asking for feedback because you need to fail if you're going to do it properly. If you're not trying hard enough, you're not pushing things hard enough. Um, I've tried to, I've tried to be less um, up and down with emotions and more channeled with them because I'm an, I'm a very like energetic and passionate human being. So I'm well, working with all the different personality types that you do experience in business or with your clients or with your vendor partner relationships, you need to, um, be able to deal with many different types that are not your flow state necessarily. And so I think the biggest way to, uh, work well with others is by listening. And so I've really, I think if there's the biggest thing that I've probably learned through the seven years, at least with Nuago, it's to shut the F up a little bit more and to, to listen because it's amazing what you hear. If you truly listen, not sit there and prepare a bunch of thoughts in your head, so that you can impress somebody at the other end of it with what you know, you know, demonstrate that empathetic, empathetic uh, listening style where that person feels heard and allow time for people to actually think, just pepper them with questions. And you know, I'm big on the, the human being side of leadership. You know, you got your leadership, you got management, you got accountability, but you know, I think you've got to connect with the person first and foremost and realize that every human's that, uniquely keyed lock that you've got to understand how to work with the individual because there's no real blanket leadership style. I think there's management frameworks we can put over the top of everybody, but there's no one size fits all leadership. Yeah. I can watch the, I can vouch that you're a great listener. Oh, thank you. The conversation we had earlier. I really enjoyed it. You can tell the people that actively listen when the moment you engage with them in a conversation mm. they ask mm. a question and you can like this person's actually listening to me yeah and then you you feel like oh i can start sharing a bit more and a bit more and a bit more and then that's how the connections are built right yeah and within personal space as well as professional we've got less opportunity to you know engage and like there's less windows to do that because everybody's always looking down at their their bloody smartphone right which they're great tools but they've just become so overutilized that you know, it's even causing postural problems for people because they're always rolling their shoulders forward. That some of people getting back problems. Even you know, I even develop some because I'm typing all the time or on my phone. And when saw a specialist, he's like, "Yeah, you can develop, you know, genuinely, you know, uh, bodily challenges as a result of too much time on screens and those sort of things." Right? That's Ali's favorite topic, the attention economy. And I should le- yeah. like I've actually learned that from Ali, and. Um, Going back to your point around listening, I'm pretty sure it's the sixth or seventh habit in the book by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And you think about it, there's a there's a bloody reason why it's not the first or the second or the third or the fourth, because they're in that order for a reason. He talks about it in the book. But now that you've got it and you can reflect back on it, how did that translate to your personal life? Because Ali and I had these interesting adjacent learnings on the podcast that really helped us personally and professionally. I'm curious to hear how did active listening on your end yeah. go from business to personal, whether it's your children, your wife, yeah. your best mates, whatever it may be. Yeah. 
That's a really good one, right? Seven Habits by Stephen Covey is a timeless book that's brilliant. Everybody that's in our business has the opportunity to learn that as a program. My uh, my pops runs, not to talk about him too much again, but that's something that he still comes back into the business to do, to give back, to give people, you know, great foundational life lessons to live by in those things. It's optional completely for people, but I've done it numerous times and gained something new every single time through doing it. And I mean, those first three habits are about self and the other three about others. So when you introduce somebody talking, you know, that's one of those skills, like you said, about listening. How is that translated to my personal life? Positively, I think. Uh, it's amazing how much you actually just hear uh, if you truly listen. Um, one of the things that I'm still learning to this day is that sometimes listening is actually what the person needs, not a solution. Um, so hard for men. Yes. Yes. Especially when you're sitting there like in business all day long, like my job's kind of to make decisions, right? I want to make less and less of them as I go on in my career and empower people so that they are. Um, so continue to work on delegation with that. But I sometimes I got to catch myself. You got to remind yourself. That's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned through the business as well is, uh, you know, that how you show up is the most important thing. So what's going on for you? Cause are you bringing in a stressed out state or whatever else it is? And you know, it, it takes practice to become a good listener. There's no class for it, really. You're at a listening school. Yeah. How do you manage that? How do you manage showing up in the most authentic way, showing up as Connor every day and leading 60-odd people? So in a way that you also are authentic to yourself and how you're feeling, because there will be some days that Connor is feeling stressed, oh, Connor yeah. is feeling not 100%, yep. but you want to show up in the sense that the other 60-odd people, when they see you, they will be like, I don't know. State management's key. Hmm. Right. And so you got to know yourself, know what, you know, pay attention to your body. You know, if you, you feel your heart rate starting to move, I went and did uh, unleash the power within a Tony Robbins thing back in like 2013 yeah, nice. with people. And you walk on hot coals at the end of the first day and stuff. And he's a pretty incredible person. He has, I think some people think he's a big kind of rah, rah American dude, but I really valued going to it. I was skeptical at first, but really liked going to it. And, um, you know, I think a lot of what he talks about is state management and how you show up and how to bring yourself back into a state where you, you know, you can trigger immediately being able to bring that energy in. Um, he makes you go through an exercise with that. But I've always found that just, you know, breathing is one of the, we all do it. It's something that's always there. You know, different people get meditation or mindfulness or centering themselves in different ways through their faith or spirituality or whatever it is for different people. It's all pretty common in my opinion. There's a big common theme there. Um, so really try to make sure that I'm, I'm practicing that. I think often if you just take a few deep breaths or do a bit of box breathing or a little bit of meditation, you very quickly just, well, you get back in the moment and live in the moment rather than thinking about the zillion things you've got. So you got to have a good time management system to know that you're not going to drop a bunch of priorities and everything else as well. That allows for you then to probably be where you are, uh, you know, with that person. Cause people can always sense if you're thinking about other things or you're checking your watch or glancing at your phone or your, uh, your smartwatch or something popping up. I want to dig a bit more because I've watched this beautiful episode with Tim Grover, um, who was coaching Michael Jordan and a few other athletes for a while. And I'm sure you know who he is. And he essentially talks about it from the perspective of alter ego from memory. Okay. And different people have different triggers, whether pretty much what you say, whether it's more of a spiritual or physical some very senior executive, he's actually coached, have the photo of their grandma or their mum, right, sitting on their desk 
but all they have to do is like rotate it or just twist it or something they just have to do like a little gesture with the arm or like touch the collar it's literally a trigger switch states but that topic always just baffled me like is it mm. really that that straightforward obviously there's practice yes you know you're meditating with yourself but have you managed to figure out what are your triggers that i think have worked for you like how do you find that like key to switch states because it's a lot easier said than done yeah it's probably a hard thing to put words around exactly what the observations i have for myself but it's really like i i think the the breath is the easiest way to do it is because if you start to shorten your breath and you and you're stopping breathing and those sort of things you just start to then you know feel different emotions and those sort of things if you're starving your body of oxygen so i think it's really it's just always just trying to go all right where's my breathing at that breathing then starts to slow the thinking down and go all right in the grand scheme of things how big is this i do this exercise where i just kind of explode out of my own mind to you know being in an airplane at fourteen thousand feet and then back down to where i am and one of the things I learned in NLP and the neurolinguistics programming stuff is how to go through the different kind of perspectives, which removes you from the first person and lets you be that person in an airplane looking down on the situation. There's several levels between doing that. There's a technique that you can do for it. But I've always found that now, because I learned that technique, I'm better at it. You kind of get over things quicker or get back down to being in a more relaxed state. If you go through more experiences and challenges, you kind of just become a little bit more, you know, I guess, relaxed about things when they do come. You expect that there's going to be, you know, roadblocks, challenges, things that come up and you just roll with them a little bit easier. That whole be like water. I can't remember who said that. Bruce Lee. Maybe. Bruce Lee. Yeah. 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 So in, in essence, you remove yourself from the, 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 the circumstances that you're in. Yeah. And you're looking at it from above, like well, how important this is. Is it actually as bad as... I'm making it to right. be, right? right. That's, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Um, I was actually telling this to my partner the other day because she was going through something. I'm like, you're so caught up in all this. Just step out of it. I'm like, yeah. step out of it. And if you were looking at it from above, what would you tell yourself? She's like, oh, I'll tell myself this. I'm like, okay, how do you feel? I think I'm just going to do yeah. that. Yeah. Done. yeah. And sometimes it can be like, well, okay, let's change the names in the scenario. So it was like us in this room, you just change it to some other people's names. And you're like, okay, so if this scenario was happening to X, Y, and Z people, what would you tell them? And I think there's just that, even that subtle change of it's other people's names. How would I advise other people? You can kind of start to arrive at maybe, you know, diffusing the situation for yourself or realizing that it is not as big or uh, as, as bad as you think it is. Before, it's completely off topic. Um, before we started the episode, we had a chat about social media. Yes. And you told me that you don't have any social, personal social media. Yeah, yeah, I do have a LinkedIn, but yeah. yeah. Um, someone that's in tech what's your philosophy behind social media what because that's an area that i'm very very interested in yeah there's some some good outcomes for people i'm not going to say that there's not around social media i i had it when you i was in university you had to have a university email account to get facebook because zuckerberg started that and it was supposed to be a university thing and then obviously it grew from there i think everybody's probably seen that movie and seen the ridiculous thing that human being if he's a human being has done to society um it's a bit of a droid at times, I think. Um, but social media is largely, you know, powered by artificial intelligence. That kind of first contact we had with AI really was was spurred through that. And, you know, 
Social Dilemma is obviously a very good movie with some very smart people that talk about that uh, competition, the attention economy, and uh, trying to keep eyeballs and keep scrolling. And I think the guy who even invented that technology regrets ever doing it because of what it's done. And I think most people don't realize how much time they actually spend on there and the amount of good things that they could be doing to nurture them, their life and have authentic experiences. And, you know, I always find it strange when you go see one and see someone and you got to have a chat, like what'd you do on the weekend? They, they already know. Cause you put up every picture you had of your breakfast and um, applied whatever filters to make you look like, you didn't have, you know, a poor night's sleep because your kids were waking you up or whatever it was, or there was a storm. So, yeah, I just, I feel like it's a little disingenuous. I think it's great to keep in contact with other people, but I think it's, it's perpetuating a lot of negative things. And, you know, uh, as a father now, I, I'm not, not thrilled about the society they might be exposed to. So I'm continuously asking myself questions about how do I assist in, you know, guiding them to make good choices so that they can, you know, continue to do that when I'm not, you know, impacting them as much under my own roof and those things at home. You touched on a very big topic now, Ali, and <laughs> we'll wrap it up, wrap it up in a bit. I mean, social media is very interesting and you work in tech, but I always ask myself the question, is this really a tech problem or a human problem? Correct. You know, you gotta have tech for purpose. Even in what I do, like in, from a consultative and what we supply as a business, the same thing. You know, sort of why are you doing it? Because you get people with like magpie syndrome, right? The flashy, cool tech stuff. It's like, oh my God, it's exciting. Well, like, why do you need this? Oh, because Apple just said it's cool now. So, you know, some influencer got paid tons of money to promote this product, which hasn't even been scientifically tested. And we haven't done any longitudinal studies on these things. So I think we're just so quick to accept, you know, just, you know, the term instant gratification came up before. I think, you know, we're, we're losing touch with what it's like to sit with our own thoughts. There was one of those studies done that I think people would rather in 15 minutes of spending time with their own thoughts, they would rather get an electric shock. I can't remember the exact name of the study or whatever it was, but that was baffling to me. Absolutely baffling. Like you can't sit for 15 minutes. Like you'd prefer to get physically harmed. That's, that's, that's interesting. That's pretty telling about society and where we are. So that I think we might have listened to the same podcast recently because that was on one of the Dara of the CEO podcast. I do love me some Stephen Bartlett. Yeah. So. Love Stephen Bartlett. We both do. And I think the setup was you've walked in, they did it in a hospital or in a clinic setting where you're in a waiting room and they said, Hey everyone, just letting you know, there's a machine that you can play with. It's a 30 minute wait, but feel free want to use it or just wait in the room. And they just obviously monitored everyone and only, I think what, less than a third, I think basically over like 70, 80% of the people went and started playing with the machine and they were getting electrocuted and they were doing it again, not to sit down with their thoughts. Uh -huh. Just reminds me of that Simpsons episode where Bart keeps grabbing the cupcake that zaps him. Is that so? We've we've come to you know. You know what? What I fear is that this generation, our generation, we have uh, we have we have had experience before social media came about, right? So if you have an understanding of what that's like, people that grow up that are are getting raised in this era where they have no idea of what it's like to live without social media. Yes. I, I fear that. Yeah. And where they will go. Yeah. 
And that's why I can't have it because I know it's better at, at keeping my attention than my ability to not look at the you know black slab I keep in my pocket that's got an LCD screen on it. Um, so I was like, well, I just won't have it because you do end up. It's designed incredibly well by a machine that's smarter than us. So it's it's going to keep you captive a lot of the time. I think, kind of, I think I, I, I think I nailed it. Social media and, and, and how I use it. Yeah. Until I bought the new iPhone. Okay. I what changed? A, I bought a new iPhone and there's something about this bloody screen I've created. It's so nice. I'm just want to kind of stare at it. It's a work of art. Yeah, it's it's very nice. But I bought it for this podcast. So okay. I bought it so we can record as it's sitting there right yeah, now. Yeah. But I can't help but just be on it. Because before that I had I had social media, but I didn't have it on my phone. So I didn't have any access. And I probably would look at my phone once a day. I would not take it to work with yeah, me. Yeah, right. I would not take it out with me. I would not take it anywhere with me. I had, I had like a work phone that I would, I would. This is just what I'm saying around the way they design this thing, even from a hardware perspective. For me, I'm like, well, this thing is really... Yeah. Think about how stressed you see or panicked people you see. I don't have my phone. We, we've become... You know, my, myself too, where it's just like, you need to always be able to be in contact with people. I'm like, imagine dropping someone from today into like, you know, early 1900s. Like, let's go to the World War One and be like, all right, you've got to write a letter to let somebody know that they've even <laughs> passed away in war that they might not get for months. Yet, if, if we can't, you know, get the latest picture of our friend's eggs, Benedict, we're up, we're... <laughs> <laughs> our day our day turns to shit <laughs> i'm being a little facetious but uh, you know no i agree with you i agree with you oh man this conversation is just heating up um and but i'm so conscious of your time connor no it's all good um we end the tradition something similar to the ifc right? uh the similar the, uh, the last guest has left you a question oh nice and i'm gonna play it for you do you have a moment of failure that you look back at and uh, reflect on today and think that wasn't too bad and you kind of made it through. Oh man, what failure to pick. Yeah, one. I guess one of my biggest fears is is probably not having failed enough because it means I'm probably not trying hard enough. I don't really want to get comfortable. I kind of have a hard time sitting still. Um, you know, I've had, had countless failures in, in business, in sport, in, in just the decisions that I've made in life. Um, to narrow it down to one would be almost challenging, right? Because I think I try to live where I am constantly failing. Um, I made a big one in our business where I dropped the ball and something cost us a lot of money. It was like, I don't know, 50 or 60 grand when we were a small company and it was my mistake because I wasn't diligent enough on something. That, I felt like my heart was stopping when I learned about that one. Um, but it taught me a hell of a lot, like that, I needed to get a better detail focus on things and, um, you know, grow from the experience. So that one I remember wearing pretty badly because it was, it was directly my fault. I made the mistake. Yeah, it was, you know, somebody ripped us off, but I just, I was lackadaisical in my approach and yeah, it hit pretty hard. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You both as well. And in the podcast. Yes. Thank you for taking the time. It's actually been really, really fun. What an awesome Friday, you know, evening in a way to wrap it up to kick off the weekend. Well, thank you guys for hosting me. I mean, here at Law 14 and, you know, you're both such uh, energetic and passionate people that 
Um, I'm sure it won't be the last of the discussions we have. Thank you for listening. I'm sure this episode has really resonated with you, but we'd love to know which part. We would love to get your feedback, so please do reach out to us via our website or any of our social media platforms. You can find these through any of the links attached to this episode.